Our first Bible reading is taken from Isaiah chapter 36, verses 1 to 18, and it can be found on page 719 of the Church Bibles. Isaiah 36, verses 1 to 18. In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. When the commander stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field, Eliakim, son of Hilakiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to him. The field commander said to them, Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have strategy and military strength, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look now, you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of staff, which pierces a man's hand and wounds him if he leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. And if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar? Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses, if you can put riders on them, How then can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you are depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this land without the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the field commander, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people on the wall. But the commander replied, Was it only to your master and you that my master sent me to say these things, and not to the men sitting on the wall, who, like you, will have to eat their own filth and drink their own urine? Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then every one of you will eat from his own vine and fig tree and drink water from his own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of corn and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says the Lord will deliver us. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? The second reading is taken from the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 37, verses 14 to 17 and 30 to 32, and then chapter 38, verses 1 to 8. It can be found on page 721 of the Church Bibles. Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, 
enthroned between the cherubim. You alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. And then verse 30. This will be the sign for you, O Hezekiah. This year you will eat what grows by itself, and the second year what springs from that. But in the third year sow and reap, plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Once more a remnant of the kingdom of Judah will take root below and bear fruit above. For out of Jerusalem will come a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. In chapter 38, verse 1. In those days Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, This is what the Lord says. Put your house in order, because you are going to die. You will not recover. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Remember, Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and tell Hezekiah, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David, says. I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will add 15 years to your life, and I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city. This is the Lord's sign to you that the Lord will do what he has promised. I will make a shadow cast by the sun go back the 10 steps it has gone down on the stairway of Ahaz. So the sunlight went back the ten steps it had gone down. This is the word of the Lord. It would be great help if you have that passage in front of you. If it's on page 719, there are times when we need to look at a, a larger section because it hangs together, and this is one of those moments. If I were to ask you today... On what are you depending, I wonder what you'd reply. And if I asked what were your expectations as a Christian, as one of God's people, what would you say? Today, having spent some weeks looking at Isaiah's prophecies, we come to a historical interlude in these chapters, 36 to 39. And we read in 36 and 37 how God delivers Jerusalem and its king, Hezekiah, from the besieging Assyrian army under King Sennacherib's field commander. Incidentally, do go into the British Museum and see some of the Assyrian artifacts there, and you really realize that they were very vicious and very tough in the sculptures. You can see that. In 38 and 39, the chronology, in fact, is reversed, as these two chapters deal with events in Hezekiah's life before Jerusalem was besieged, that is, before 701 B.C., And although these events occurred nearly 3,000 years ago, I believe there's much for us to learn and take to heart this morning. It's the story of a good king, but a flawed king. 
and the story of the sovereign God who is majestic in power and also full of mercy. What are the lessons for us? Here's the first one. As God's people, we will always face opposition. As God's people, we will always face opposition. In Hezekiah's case, obviously from Sennacherib, it begins with a propaganda attempt to shake Hezekiah's confidence in God. Look at verse 4. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? By the way, I've got my army behind me, so just think about it. And then he seeks to shake the people's confidence in Hezekiah's leadership. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you. Verse 14, do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says, the Lord will surely deliver us. Sennacherib's field commander is very blunt with the officials sent out from Jerusalem to meet him. Verse 5, you say you have a strategy and military strength. You speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? And he contemptuously dismisses the possibility of rescue by Egypt. Verse 6, he likens it to a splintered reed of a staff which pierces a man's hand and wounds him if he leans on it. It's the ancient equivalent of they are useless. And then he confidently asserts that God is also against them. Surrender is their only option. Terms can be arranged, verses 8 and 9. And in a final blow, undermining any possible remnant of confidence in God, he declares, the Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Whilst it was perfectly true that God had used Assyria to discipline his disobedient people, you can read about that in chapter 10, God also made it perfectly clear that this would be only for a limited period. And as if all this wasn't bad enough, the commander repeats his message, his threatening message, in Hebrew in order to cause disaffection and rebellion against Hezekiah. He was not playing according to Queensbury rules. And the final apparently conclusive argument is that there will be no rescue. How could there be when none of the gods of the other conquered peoples have been able to stand against Assyria's advance? Verse 20, how then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? So note the mention of the enemy's apparent greater strength. Verses 8 and 9, note the flat denial of God's promises. Verse 15, Note the appeal to their desire for material comforts and sensual pleasures. Verse 16, every one of you will eat from his own vine and fig tree, drink water from his own cistern, until I come and take you to a land uh, uh, like yours, your own, a land of corn and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. It's going to be like the south of France. The sun will beat down, you'll be in the shade, there'll be plenty of water, you just pick the grapes and drink the wine, and of course... It will be vintage wine. And note, above all else, the attempt to disparage Almighty God by comparing him with all the false gods of the region. Verse 15. What does this remind you of? Isn't it how Satan spoke to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? The attempt to disparage God by making God out to be mean, forbidding them the pleasures of eating from any tree in the garden. The appeal to their senses when Eve saw that the fruit was good for food and pleasing to the eye. 
You see, from beginning to end, for God's people, there will always be opposition. Because in Satan, we have an enemy implacably opposed to God's purposes. And he will attempt to deceive us about God's power and about God's goodness. Are you sure that God is good? Are you sure he can do anything about this? And so the question is very much for us to answer too, as it, as it was posed to Hezekiah, on what are you basing this confidence of yours? On whom are you depending? Are you and I relying on material wealth, on a good job, on a successful career to get us through life? And even if we say we are relying on God, will our faith in him withstand the voices we hear daily telling us that God is weak, God is powerless. You see, God's people will always face opposition. Here's the second lesson, I think. As God's people, we need to know the power of prayer. We need to know the power of prayer. What is Hezekiah's reaction when he hears what the field commander had said? Look at chapter 37, verse 1. When King Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth, and went into the temple of the Lord. He's very tempted to be afraid, verse 6, but despite that, he goes straight to God. He puts on sackcloth, a sign of penitence, send messengers to Isaiah with a message showing that he knows the need for repentance. This day is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace. And he also has God's honor in mind when he speaks of Sennacherib's ridiculing, verse 4, the living God. And God responds directly to Hezekiah through Isaiah. He's not to be afraid of the blasphemous words against Almighty God, for God is going to engineer it so that Sennacherib retreats to his own country where he will be killed. But the crisis doesn't end there. Sometimes it just gets worse. The Assyrians hear that the Egyptians, who have helped in the past, are on the move. So Sennacherib sends a further message. And this message is written down. His threats are repeated by letter. There's something about a letter, isn't there? It's there in black and white. And once again, Hezekiah goes to God. Look at verse 14 of chapter 37. Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. He went up to the temple of the Lord and he spread it out before the Lord. This is the end, I think I can hear him saying. What are you going to do about this? This is too much. And as he prays, he acknowledges God's supreme power and authority. Verse 16, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. That came over, didn't it, wonderfully in Jenny Moore's prayers. That gets our perspective right. He acknowledges, too, the reality of the situation. The fact is the Assyrians have been victorious everywhere. It's no good pretending. And then he prays for deliverance. But again, note his overriding concern, verse 20, so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Of course, prayer is absolutely vital in the Christian life and not just in a crisis. 
First, because when we pray, when we acknowledge God's greatness and sovereign power, it puts whatever we're facing in its true perspective. However big this is, God is bigger still. And second, because for reasons we cannot fully understand, God has chosen to work through the prayers of his people. We need to get to the place of praying as a first resort, not as a last resort. And we need to understand that when we've prayed, we can leave everything safe in God's hands. Do you remember the words of the hymn? Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. My wife, Trisha, and I knew an elderly saint in Ireland who had contributed a very great deal to God's work uh, through running a very successful business. And he told us once that he always slept well because each night before he went to sleep, he would consciously leave all his many projects and concerns in God's hands. Over to you, Lord, he would say as he went to sleep. Over to you, Lord. You see, God's people need to know the power of prayer. And thirdly, as his people, we can trust in God's sovereign power. We can trust in God's sovereign power because the answer to Hezekiah's prayer comes through Isaiah in a most remarkable prophecy. We read it in the rest of chapter 37. First, God speaks against Sennacherib, verse 21 of chapter 37. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. Because you've prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word the Lord has spoken against him. The virgin daughter of Zion despises and mocks you. The daughter of Jerusalem tosses her head as you flee, Sennacherib. Who is it you've insulted and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes in pride against the Holy One of Israel? God condemns the blasphemy and the insults of Sennacherib. Sennacherib has boasted about his many chariots, his foreign conquests, but God made it clear that these victories had all been foreordained by him. He had allowed them. God knows all about Sennacherib and his insolence, verse 29, and God is not mocked, for judgment is coming for Sennacherib. And God repeats this to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter the city. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. Jerusalem will be saved, and a remnant from Judah will, sh will show a new spiritual fruitfulness, mirroring the fruitfulness of the land. Verses 31 and 32. And all this will come about at the hand of God. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now just bear in mind, Jerusalem is under siege. There is a massive great army here. Hezekiah is very nervous but praying. And God is saying, leave it to me. And no sooner said than done. And we read in verses 36 to 38, Overnight, the Assyrians are killed. Overnight. Dramatically, yes, but powerfully and truthfully, thousands of them. 
Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men. And Sennacherib flees to Nineveh, where two of his sons assassinate him as he worships in his pagan temple. Well, well, well. And so God's word is fulfilled that he'd given to Isaiah that we can read at the beginning of chapter 37, verse 7, listen, I'm going to put a spirit in Sennacherib so that when he hears a certain report, he will return to his own country and there I will have him cut down with a sword. And that is what happens. You see, for all his apparent might and strength, which was very great in human terms, he is no match for the living God. His sovereign power over the universe and over time time is set out in the majestic passage, if you look on to chapter 40. Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? Who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? The answer is no one. You cannot have got it right if you think that your God is able to receive help from you. He reduces the world, the rulers of this world, to nothing, just as he did to Sennacherib. Knowing all this, how can we not trust in God's sovereign power? Yes, we have many questions. We will not have them answered this side of heaven. But have no doubt, God is still the sovereign Lord. Here's my fourth and final lesson. As God's people, we can be sure of ultimate deliverance and mercy. Ultimate deliverance and mercy. Look at 38, verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah became ill. He was at the point of death. And the prophet Isaiah went to him and said, This is what the Lord says. Put your house in order because you're going to die. You will not recover. Well, that's a wake-up call, isn't it? And please note that there is uh, something unusual in the arrangement of the chapters for the events here precede the attack of 701, probably written a year before the siege. So in verse 6, it seems to indicate an attack is only possibly imminent. And the positioning of this section is a link to illustrate the principle that God does hear and answer prayer. At this point, the crisis is Hezekiah's health and the threat of terminal illness. And what is his action, as so many of us it would be? He prays. And God replies, this is what the Lord says, put your house in order because you're going to die, you will not recover. And Hezekiah weeps bitterly, and God then responds, I have heard your prayer and seen your tears, I will add 15 years to your life. Hezekiah needs reassurance that God will act on his promise, including the promise to deliver Jerusalem. Now we have to say that as 21st century men and women brought up to the view of scientific materialism, this is a problem for us. Alec Matier has commented rather helpfully here. It would be as improper for us to be dogmatic about how this was done as to deny what is plainly stated. Scripture presents the creator God as the sovereign master of his creation, and the believing mind accepts that he could, at will, add 10 units of time to that day, and equally, of course, God can add 15 years to the king's life. If God is God, he can. 
And the remaining section of chapter 38 from verse 9 is Hezekiah's reflection on his experience of hearing that he was going to die, put your house in order. Now it is just worth us bearing this mind if that message was given to us. Is your house in order? Being married to a lawyer, have you made a will? If you have children, shame on you if you haven't. For some of us, that should involve other practical matters. So helpful if you tell us what hymns you really want, your favorite hymns or your readings. But far more important is to put our spiritual house in order. This is a prayer, 17th century prayer by Richard Baxter, and it's one that I use regularly, personally. It makes the same point. Here it is. Keep us, O Lord, while we tarry on this earth in a serious seeking after you, and in an affectionate walking with you every day of our lives, that when you come, we may be found not hiding our talent, nor serving the flesh, nor yet asleep with our lamp unfurnished, but waiting and longing for our Lord, our glorious God forever. Isn't that great? And Hezekiah has a new resolve. Look at verse 15. I will walk humbly all my years. He's not going to waste the years that are left to him. And it's a thought that's picked up in a prayer that's part of the modern funeral service. It goes like this. Grant us, Lord, the wisdom and the grace to use aright the time that is left to us on earth. And we don't know how long it will be. Let's make the most of the time. And Hezekiah has a wonderful sense of awareness of the forgiveness of sins. Look at 38 verse 17. You've put all my sins behind your back. And if that was true for him, how much more so for us who can look back to the cross of Christ? For God not only puts our sins out of sight, he puts them out of reach. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. He puts our sins out of mind. I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. He puts our sins out of existence. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sin's sake and remembers your sins no more. Isn't that fantastic? Now, if only the story of Hezekiah, a good king, ended at chapter 38. Tragically, it doesn't. And like many others, as we heard last Sunday evening, do hear it, incidentally, Tim's uh, talk on uh, King Solomon. King Solomon does not end well. Hezekiah had learned the secret of prayer in the crisis of his illness, and this in turn equipped him to face the threats of the Assyrian, for he knew what to do, trust in God and pray for help. Now the Babylonians were cunning, and when he recovered from his illness, they sent him presents. And this was rather flattering for a small nation to be recognized by an up-and-coming superpower. So without any thought of seeking God's guidance and wisdom, either consulting Isaiah, he simply, Hezekiah, welcomes his visitors and shows them, can you believe this, his silver, his gold, his spices, and his entire armory. And Isaiah only discovers what's happened when it's too late. And God responds to Hezekiah's arrogance by telling him that everything the Babylonians saw will in time be theirs, for it is Babylon, not Assyria, who will be their conquerors. And they were. 
and we leave Hezekiah with his self-centered, complacent response to God's judgment ringing in our ears. Chapter 39, verse 8. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, for he thought, there will be peace and security in my lifetime. John Oswalt concludes, Isaiah is showing that there is no final salvation in a human being, no matter how good he might be. Our hope is not in the perfectibility of humanity, meaning someone capable of achieving perfection on earth through natural means without the grace of God. The Messiah we look for is better than that. And next Sunday morning, we consider the character of that perfect Messiah from Isaiah 53. So, as God's people, we can be confident of God's ultimate deliverance and mercy, even if in this life it may not always appear like that. For we have Christ, and as we look forward to Easter, we can celebrate his death, his resurrection, and the certainty that we will be delivered from death and enjoy God's love and presence eternally. And as God's people, we will always face opposition. We need to know the power of prayer. We can trust in God's sovereign power, and we can be sure of ultimate deliverance and mercy. And may God make each of these great truths real in our own lives today and in the days to come. Just a moment of quiet. We have galloped through some chapters, but it shows us a whole story of a lifetime. The good and the sad. Allow God to pinpoint anything that you need to hear personally today. Hezekiah prayed, You alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have put all my sins behind your back. <laughs>